Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is Ita Zor, co-founder and CEO of Veho. Welcome, Ita. Thanks, Santosh. Great to be here. It is great to have you. And I have a lot I want to cover here on the topic of last mile logistics because I hear you're the wizard. But I'd love for you to just kind of open up here and start with the founding story of Aho, which is very closely tied to your personal story. So take it away. That's right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking. So I'm Israeli born and raised, and I moved to the U.S. in 2015 to go to business school. Back in 2015, e-commerce wasn't a big thing in Israel. You know, it's a small country. People would just walk or drive to the store nearby. And e-commerce was just not very developed at the time. And I moved to Boston and I was exposed to e-commerce for the first time, right? So that was magical. You can buy things online and magically it shows up at your doorstep. Except that many times I placed orders and things would show up. But by the time I came back home, they were stolen from my doorstep. I remember one time walking into my apartment building and there's a, a big glass door and there were maybe 40 different sticky notes from UPS and FedEx, you know, those sticky notes to say, sorry, we missed you. So that seemed odd to me. And then I had my, my, the experience that actually made me decide to start this company was that I, I purchased a subscription to one of those national meal kit companies, the famous company that everybody knows who they are. And it was a Monday. So I went to school that day and. I, I left the refrigerator empty. I was expecting to receive the box with the food in the evening. By the time I came back, there was no box and there was no tracking page and I had no food. So I went to sleep hungry that night. And the following day, I called their customer service of that brand. And they told me, we don't know where the box is. You got to call the delivery company. So I called the delivery company. Nobody answered the phone for 40 minutes and I just canceled my subscription. And they had this moment with myself, I said, you know, this e-commerce brand is spending so much money on branding and product and, you know, everything that goes into their website. But in that moment of truth, in that moment when, you know, the customer actually gets to meet the product for the first time, that was non-existent. And then because of that, all that money that they were spending went to waste. And I said, we need to bring that moment of truth back to e-commerce logistics and make delivery, not just like, okay, but make it great so that brands and so the customers fall in love with those brands and come back and become repeat customers. And that's how you make money in e-commerce. And that was the, I would say the epiphany that made me start this business. So you talk about the post-purchase experience when you talk about Veho these days. Could you explain that concept? For our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. When you think about, we're starting with what is a great customer experience when receiving a box, right? Today, 
almost all the investment in, as it relates to e-commerce experience, is a pre-purchase experience. That means that the website is great. There's a lot of marketing. You know, the product is really good. But as soon as the customer places an order and they're starting to expect the box to arrive at their door, the communication is broken. The customer doesn't know where the package is. And the customer doesn't have any control over the process whatsoever, right? So that is the post-purchase experience. We call it a chasm. Uh, there is a, a chasm that means the pre-purchase experience exists, but anything afterwards is handed over to a third-party logistics company that usually just doesn't put the customer in the center. And what a great customer experience is that the customer feels in control. They can choose when and where and how they receive the box. You know, they can reroute the package to a different address. You can leave delivery instructions. You can rate the service. You can return things from your doorstep. You don't even have to print the label. It's so seamless. It's so easy. You can communicate with a live person, right? Like, what are all the things that make people feel they're in control, but this is a great experience that ultimately make the customer want to come back and buy again? And that is how we think about the post-purchase experience, bridging that gap between the pre-purchase and the post-purchase and making the the experience of receiving the box so seamless that then the customer has a customer high, higher customer lifetime value. That's what Vio does. Essentially, we're focusing on providing a 99, north of 99% on-time delivery, incredible customer experience, ability to return things from your doorstep seamlessly that makes customers place more orders at the first place, come back and buy more from that brand. That's essentially the, the post-purchase experience concept. With that, as we think about the overall industry, you had a recent press release that mentioned 99% on-time delivery rates and price stability as two key things that you offer your customers. Could you kind of just give us a sense of the state of the last mile logistics industry? Where are things? What should our audience and people following along know as of kind of early 2023? Yeah. So as all of us know, the listeners know, the markets have turned down after years of growth. And many brands are responding to the recession, but taking a conservative approach and thinking about how to save money in every way possible. And the way that manifests itself in the market sometimes is that we see brands cutting down on customer-friendly policies, you know, implementing stricter returns policies. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of focus on profitability in the market that, as a result, makes brands take what you know, we consider a short-term approach that is short-sighted as well. And you know, at Vilo, we encourage our partners and you know, prospective partners to think long-term beyond just this macroeconomic environment. And how do you bridge the gap between the two, right? You can actually save more money in logistics, and you can actually do that in a way that creates a better customer experience that makes the customer ultimately become a loyal customer. And that's what brands ultimately are trying to optimize for, right? Because it's all a, a question of LTV over CAC, lifetime value over the, the cost of acquiring that customer in the first place. How do you make them come back and buy again, right? So at Vio, as an, and I'll give you an, an example, you know, uh, returns is one of those examples where a lot of brands are trying to cut down on returns, make it harder for customers to 
uh, return a package that they, they don't want. Uh, but the, mm. what that results in is that those customers ultimately say, well, if I can't return this thing, I may just not come back and buy again. I'll go to other brands that give me a better, better way to return things. And at Veal, we say, look, we understand returns cost you money. So first of all, you can charge for it. We actually have the data that customers are willing to pay for returns. It doesn't have to be a loss leader for you. Second, you should measure the results. If you make it easy, if a customer can leave you know, a shirt outside their door, they don't have to print a label, they don't have to go and drop it off somewhere, it's just very easy, then you know, first of all, you're getting the product back faster. You can turn over the industry, the inventory faster. That saves you money. You know, second, there's a much higher likelihood that, that person would even place the order in the first place because they know it's easy to return. And third, there's a much higher likelihood that, that person will come back and buy again because they know how easy it is to do business with you. And I can tell you, my personal experience is I only shop from brands that make it easy. And I become a very valued customer for them and spend a lot of money with them. So, you know, we're seeing some short-sightedness. We're seeing a lot of focus on, on, on profitability and economics, you know, justifiably so in this macro environment. And we're also encouraging our partners to think long-term about how do you take a look at the current environment and bring some long-term thinking around creating customer lifetime value, which is ultimately the way to profitability. Mm. That's a really interesting statement around consumers being willing to pay for returns because that certainly helps the unit economic equation at the retailer level. But I want to kind of pull this thread on, on unit economics. And I had the good fortune of meeting you way back in the day, if you recall, when you're raising your pre-seed. And candidly, I was pretty grumpy about scaling unit economics in last mile delivery networks. And in part, you're proving that assertion incorrect. So I would have loved to kind of hear how you're doing it and how you think of growing, but equally growing in a way that's thoughtful with strong unit economics, because that's few and far between in your industry. I do remember that conversation took place, uh, you know, something like six or seven years ago. And by the way, I mean, your question back then was a common question that I was asked by many investors. I think at the time, companies like Uber and DoorDash were scaling very rapidly, but at the same time, were burning through a lot of money. And there was a question about the viability of these business models. And a point that I was seeing back then, and I am, by the way, just for the audience, probably you know, important to emphasize, Veal is a delivery platform that you know, as essentially facilitates a marketplace where crowdsourced drivers can deliver packages on their own time. That's how we facilitate the delivery. So there are similarities between Uber and DoorDash. Those companies were innovators that had not proven their business models quite yet. Whereas I looked outside and saw UPS and FedEx and a handful of regional delivery companies that were all profitable companies. You know, granted, the margins are not very big in those companies, but in my mind, it was how do we get to scale? Because when you have scale in this industry, then you can make the economics work. And we tailored a go-to-market approach that basically focus on large retailers have a lot of volume and that intimately have a pain point around customer experience. So we know that if they get a bad delivery, if they give their customers a bad delivery experience, those customers may 
cancel their subscription or not come back and buy more. And that really hurts their unit economics. And so we found those brands, the early adopters, if you will, who felt the pain point so hard that we were able to pitch them on working with a small startup. And then we didn't try to prove this, you know, at, everywhere at once, but we try to prove it at a local level with a limited number of zip codes and then extend from there. And that's the approach that we've been taking, you know, since then. As we go and open more markets, we have a model that uh, projects how long it would take that market to, to get profitable. We go and measure progress against those results and we continue to optimize along the way. I think that's the only way to, to run a company of, of this type where you have to be on top of, of the numbers and the economics. But, you know, with technology, with the right operating model, there's definitely a, this is a definitely healthy business. It just takes a lot of precision and focus, rigor, and have a very good strategy to get there. And I will say on analytical rigor and being very data-driven, Matt at Springtime, you know, speaks very highly of your ability to run the business in that way. So, so kudos on that front. Thank you. So kind of staying in, in, in those early years, right? As you're kind of on that zero to one journey, trying to understand how to begin scaling. Was there an early decision that really shaped Vejo's rapid growth that you could point to? There are several. I'll name a few. Uh, the first and the most important thing that I think any CEO can do and any founder can do is to bring in the right people around you. And we, we've brought in some phenomenal people early on who have experience growing rapidly, scaling companies that have made all the difference in the world for us. Uh, so I have a co-founder, his name is Fred, he's our CTO. He's a third time, fourth time, excuse me, entrepreneur. He's built companies before. So this is my first company, but he was able to help me avoid many of the pitfalls of early stage, you know, companies. Billy Guarnier, uh, he was, uh, we brought him over from Uber. He was our COO, helped us grow the company tremendously well, applying frameworks from Uber that, you know, I've proven for Uber. And of course, has a tremendous network. He was able to attract amazing people. You know, Rachel is one of our early, Rachel Oberly, one of our early employees. Just people who work really hard and incredibly smart. So I think that's the most important thing that any CEO can do. Now, other decisions we made are going full in on working remotely. You know, we started growing fast sometime after the pandemic hit, around June, July 2020, we started getting a lot of adoption from e-commerce brands that had not considered VO before, but now they were capped. Their volumes were capped by UPS or FedEx. UPS and FedEx just couldn't take more volume. So we had this huge demand. And we said, we're going to have to grow the company really quickly to meet this demand, but we just can't do this in any one particular market because people are moving. It's a pandemic. I was in San Francisco. People are moving out of San Francisco. And we just decided to go fully remote, uh, except for our warehouses. And growing the team re remotely allowed us to tap into a much larger network of folks and incredible people. I have a diverse team. So that made all the difference in the world, of course. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about it later. You know, there's a way to build a culture that makes people work together and get excited while they're working remotely. And also working with brands. The third thing I would say is uh, the decision to focus on brands that intimately understood the value of the customer experience that we're bringing to the market. You know, they understood that 
delivering 4.9 stars out of five on average for every delivery or north of 99.9%, 99% on-time delivery times 99.9% makes all the difference in the world. And they can translate this into business results. When you have those early adopters that are just huge fans, they will give you all the volume in the world. And that helps us move much faster, open more markets, bring those brains with us and build a technology that allows us to scale from there. Love that. Love that. Thanks for sharing and willing to kind of be reflective in that regard. So when Veho started, it was you, team of 14. In 2020, it seems like you scaled to about 400 employees. And as of today, according to LinkedIn, you're kind of somewhere around 500, 550. Leaning into kind of this reflective moment, if you would, do you have a few lessons learned about growing the corporate culture and team building during that period and season of rapid scaling? Because this is oftentimes yes. being a, a VC, what's so challenging, right? When you add so many people at once, how do you maintain the fiber and culture you had in the early days? This is a great question. And, and the answer is yes, I have many reflections and I continue to reflect on this every single day because we are still growing very fast. We have more than the number of employees you mentioned. Not everybody's on LinkedIn and we have them in 32 cities in the United States and some people work internationally as well. So this is always top of mind, especially as we're, we continue to grow very fast. A couple of reflections. I think one of the things that Fred, my co-founder and I did early on and was a very smart move was to decide what kind of culture we wanted to have in the first place. And what kind of values we wanted to have in the company that will promote the type of behavior that will create a great team. And actually, before we even delivered the first package, we had a values document that described, you know, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for people who will take ownership very seriously, extreme ownership. People who are candid, can give each other feedback, and they feel comfortable about giving and receiving feedback because we believe that you know, the only way to grow very fast is to learn and fix mistakes and think differently. And you have to have those candid conversations, but also people who put other people in the center, people who take human as a personal value, treating people well. And why? Because not only it's the right thing to do, but also it's a mission as a, mission as a company is to create exceptional delivery experiences for customers and drivers. You got to put people in the center. So those types of values decisions, I think, were the framework that every new person who brought to the company on their first day, you know, they get, and during their interview process as well, they're asked about those values. And on their first day, we give them context in those values. And that is sort of like the, if you will, the constitution of the company. This is the kind of people we want to have. And that ensured that, you know, while you can have diversity of experiences and, and ethnicities and genders, you know, we are all aligned on those types of values. Now, as we continue to grow the business, making sure that, you know, we start every meeting with the mission of the company. People know what we're trying to achieve and translating that mission to tangible results. I think one of the biggest reflections and takeaways is for human beings to get excited. In many cases, people want to see the impact of their work and the impact is not on the bottom line and the top line. I mean, that's fun. But at the end of the day, we are part of the community. We care about other human beings. We want to make an impact on other human beings. And so... You know, in many of the all hands meetings that we we're holding, still holding, you know, we talk about customer success stories and driver success stories and 
those stories are around how we were able to make an impact on individual lives. How is this customer who is handicapped now is able to get their food because VO is able to follow their instructions and communicate in real time. How by fixing at the driver app and adding more features, a driver can finish the route a little early so that she can pick up her child from school. These types of, um, of, of stories about human impact get people really excited, get people aligned around the mission. We celebrate the wins. So those are some of the reflections. I'll say one more thing. You know, one of, the, one of the realizations, especially in the remote culture, which I mentioned before, is that, you know, people need an outlet to be able to talk about their feelings and how, they, uh, how they're doing. And if human beings don't feel they can be truly themselves at work, particularly in a, rework, a remote work environment, there's a higher chance they'll go somewhere else and they'll go back to a company that has an office in their city. And people will need the human connection. And so we made a practice, a habit to start meetings where we do a check-in and we go around the table, virtual table, and everybody has to say how they're feeling. Green, yellow, red, share a few things. You know, I would make it a habit to say how I'm feeling. Very honestly, if I wasn't feeling very great, I would say it. People, the people felt that they can be vulnerable and they had a really good camaraderie around the table and people that they like working with. So those are some of the reflections that I think work really well for us as a team. Mm. Looking ahead, kind of what do you see in the future in terms of product development, strategy at Beho? Give us a sneak peek. Sneak peek. Our long-term vision and something that we'll continue to work on this year, next year, is to reinvent shopping by solving the pain points in shipping. It, this is not just about delivery or returns. This is, deal is about making sure that e-commerce works for everybody for brands, for customers, in a way that makes really helps drive e-commerce forward. So sneak peek for 2023. First and foremost, our goal is to maintain our exceptionally high standards for customer experience. We mentioned it before, the 4.8, 4.9 stars, and on-time delivery, which is by far higher than anybody else in the country and allows customers to trust the brand and come back and buy more for them. Now we're making a significant technology investment this year, both in our ground operations and in the marketplace. You were talking earlier about unit economics and the macro environment this day. We're, uh, we're taking advantage of the macro environment to make really good investments to make us better as a company. And I'll give you an example. You know, we're working on software and algorithm that allows us to match the right vehicle, any vehicle size to the right route. As an example, that gives us a lot more variability and flexibility in terms of what vehicles can drive on our platform. You know, you know, we're working on streamlining some of the very manual tasks for our support team so that the supporting can spend more time having meaningful conversations with customers and drivers. And then we'll make the customer experience, the driver or partner experience better. We're investing in returns and reverse logistics. And the vision there is to ultimately bring the fitting room to your living room. Think about what if you could get three boxes or four items, try them out and decide to keep a few, return a few, and then swap a few. And then VO can, you know, in real time, bring you the new product that you want to swap it for and take the old one back to the retailer. So we're working on scaling our returns program to the point that we can merge it with our delivery program and then do live swaps at the doorstep. And, you know, ultimately... Investing in that moment of truth, the moment when the customer receives the box, 
taking it a step further, how do we want customers and brands to interact around receiving a package? We think that there's tremendous untapped potential in that moment when the customer receives a box and they're so hooked and it's a great experience. How can you leverage this to build deeper relationships with that customer to make them want to come back and buy again and become a loyal fan of your brand? I don't want to go too deep into that, but we will announce later this year our next evolution of the product as it relates to the customer experience. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of sense of awesome. Yeah, no, we, and we'll certainly be looking forward to it, but you know, I'm curious, is there anything you want to discuss at this point in our conversation? Something you're curious about? I'm very curious these days about how to implement practices or a culture around moving really fast while the organization continues to to grow. It's not easy when you're a small team, five people sitting in the same office, very easy to communicate fast, moving fast. But how do you keep that habit when, you know, you're a thousand people, 2000 people and people working in different locations. And there's a lot of complexity in the organization, you know, decision-making velocity is a thing that we talk a lot about feel. And I've been curious to learn more and I'll share some, you know, quick thoughts on this, the kind of practices that were implementing or concepts that we're talking about at VO are some of them are adopted from other companies. Some of them, you know, are our own one-way door decisions versus two-way door decisions, right? What are the decisions that if you make that decision, you can always come back and correct it. So you, you want to move very fast in those one-way door is on the other end. Once you cross that door, there's no way back. You want to be more thoughtful, careful, move slowly. How to run experiments small and fail fast, you know? how to get comfortable with having a D plus version. It's not an, it's not an, an F fail, but it's also not an A plus. It's good enough to make a decision and move fast on something. You know, how do you disagree with one another, but disagree and commit? How do you focus on the needle movers? The projects that move the needle the most for the company and just like bitch, uh, or, or just like say no to other things that are not a priority. These are all things that are, in my view, fascinating while you have a lot more folks around the table and ultimately delegate decision-making so folks can make much better decisions than we at the top can. That's an area that I'm really fascinated with. Mm. And, you know, it's a conversation in boardrooms I'm in, in conversations with founders I'm in who are at that period of scale, hyperscale, we constantly talk about. And equally, it's having this vigilance with regards to what might work this year may not work next year because you've grown and you're a different shape and size and constantly being able to kind of test whether you have the right processes, technologies, as well as talent at the table to kind of get to that next point. So it might be this kind of ever existing challenge, if you would. You know, I couldn't agree more. And one of the most interesting things that get me so excited by my work as co-founder and CEO is that while the company continues to grow, there's never a definitive answer to any of those questions. How do you move fast? How do you manage people? How do you incentivize and motivate? These things constantly change based on the stage of the company and what needs to get done. Always keeps me on my toes to think about the next thing. So I love this. What are some kind of favorite leaders you have that have shaped you as a CEO from history, mentors, family, friends, you name it? A lot of folks, but 
if I have to, you know, pick two or three names, the first name I'll pick is surprising, I guess, Abraham Lincoln, you know, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest president of the United States. There's a famous book called Team of Rivals, talks about his leadership style through the Civil War. And I mean, it's just like a magical book that took so, so much from it. And I'm, I'm trying to apply and practice in my day-to-day work as CEO. And I'll give just two things, two examples. One is um, how to not act impulsively and make the decisions you want right away because you can, but instead, you know, read the surface, read people's feelings, and then find the right time to make the right decisions so that you can actually make a lot more impact. So he was great at that. He was also great at surrounding himself with people who were more experienced than him, who thought very differently than him. And so because of that, he was able to have a lot of different opinions around the table and get to the best decisions without letting his ego get in the way. He almost had no ego. And by doing that, he was able to cooperate with people that otherwise, very smart people that otherwise would not work with him. So I love that about him. A lot of humility in, in that person, truly inspiring figure. The other names I would mention, Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs, two very different people, but there are amazing biographies by Walter Isaacson about those, those two individuals and how geniuses, how much, uh, you know, they were a genius essentially. And the key takeaway that I have from those, uh, those individuals is just like to push yourself to think differently, challenge conventional wisdom. Don't let what you see in front of you constrain what you, what reality should be. Right, not what the reality is today, but what it can be and should be, and think outside the box of where we can go as as a human species. I think those are some of the most inspiring leaders that I think about in my day to day work. Love that, and bring us home here, Ita. What's your favorite daily ritual? What do you do every day that you think is an important piece of keeping a productive, happy, great leader, great family guy? I cannot overemphasize how powerful daily meditation can be. I started meditating in 2020. This is January 1st. It was my New Year's resolution. And fortunately, it happened before the pandemic hit. So I was able, while we were growing very fast and the whole world was changing, so much anxiety out there, I was able to keep my cool through that period. And, and now even beyond that, it just gets me focused, relaxed. It gets me, it removes the impulsivity from me, making decisions based on how I'm feeling in the day, but more so, but more like observing and making the right decision at the right time. And frankly, I'm just happier. Breathe more calmly, think deeply, you know, take my time to make the right moves. I would highly recommend it. I do 15 minutes every morning. There's multiple ways of doing this. There's no right way. Find your way. You make you just a, a life changer. I love that. I love that. With that, appreciate you coming, joining us, sharing the Vejo story, your story, but equally kind of perspectives on industry and business building. I know I, I speak for all of our listeners in this specific statement that we look forward to your continued success. Cheers. Thanks very much, Santos. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. 
and be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.